Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your Life Quest Liberty host, Charles Mills. The following program is sponsored by Liberty Magazine. You may have heard the old saying that those who don't study history are bound to repeat it. There's a lot of truth to that statement. Nowhere is that more evident than in the world of religious liberty. What we think is unique to our time could be a reflection of the past. A year or two ago, two men sat down at the Three Angels Broadcasting Network to talk about the past and how it may be being repeated today. Why should we care about those ancient stories of long-ago civilizations? Because those stories and those civilizations have a lot to teach us about what's taking place today. I urge you to listen closely to the following conversation and quietly, prayerfully apply what you hear to our present world. Those connections may surprise, shock, and even concern you. That, listener, would be a good thing. I'll let the host of the conversation introduce himself and his guest. Let's listen. My name is Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, and my guest on the program is Dr. John Reeve from Andrews University, Department of Church History. Let's deal with some secular history, just to throw you. No, but I know it involves church history because I believe much of what is going on today in the, in the religious liberty era and church-state relations in the United States can be traced back, obviously, to what was once the mother country, to what went on in, in England and in Europe. And I'm very fixated on the civil war in England that began with largely secular reasons, but very quickly devolved to uh, Protestants against what they saw as a Catholic sympathizing king, yeah. and uh, even further devolved to Puritans and their agenda that was at odds with the Church of England and their desire to establish the kingdom of God on earth and a holy nation and a religious republic and the whole deal and culminated with uh, Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector, who really wanted to re-Christianize his country. What are your thoughts on that era and maybe even further back? What can we say about that continuum and that history as, as how it then made its way to this part of the world? When you go back to the Magisterial Reformation, you really do not have any concept of having a separation of church and state. The idea that whatever the king or the ruler, local ruler, has as their religion, the people should have that as their religion as well, was kind of the the mode of the day. So, you know, as the king, so the people. And And it was the uh, structure of society. Of course. You know, today we look at uh, Asia and see that, like in China, that's very much the group think, and, and Japan. But that was Europe, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and, and it struck me with Christianity as it first began, wasn't it? Clovis was baptized, king of the Franks. Everyone was suddenly Christian. They yeah. didn't even know what the religion was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because they, the identity with their people, the identity, yeah. the leader is the people. So when, when you end up with Henry VIII needing to turn away from Catholicism toward Protestantism in order to achieve his ends, he did not want to make any religious change. He wanted to get rid of 
the power of the Pope and wanted right. to bring England back to uh, English power. It was power a bit bigger than, than his marriage. It was problems. bigger than his marriage. And, and I'll, uh, I will give him a little uh, boost up. He had written some very interesting articles on the whole thing. Well, to, actually, now I remember a bit more. He also wrote, wrote against Martin Luther at one point. Well, sure. Right? Yeah, he was, he was uh, called the defender of the faith. Right. Uh, uh, but by, he did write some Louis prophetic treatises too. So he was very much involved theologically. He just oh, wasn't... He was, a, he was a very astute theologian. But he was not interested in changing the way worship happened so much as he was interested in changing the power dynamics right, of the church, absolutely... getting the land back, usable land and taxable land particularly. Yeah. And his father before him, Henry VII, had been very poignant about trying to get a court of laws that were answerable to the king and not the local lords so that there would be some justice in the land. What you're really describing, which has been a long process also, was the move away from pure feudalism to more of of a modern uh, system of governance and, and a view of the individual rather than as a serf or a vessel. But many people have said that the horse that Henry rode to power, Henry VIII I'm referring to, the horse that Henry rode to power was the Lollard horse. Wycliffe, morning star of the Reformation. Yes. Many, many decades before Martin Luther. So England had been stirred with a bit more biblically based views of religion rather than, than the autocratic Church, state, and it was model. Thomas Cromwell, who was the king's man in parliament, that allowed him to make the break with Rome and to yeah. establish a Church of England with the king as the head of the Church of England, and then established that the money would no longer flow to Rome, but would stay yeah. local. All of this was changed by a person who was interested in a democratization of England and a king who was not interested in democratization. So you've got a a tension between Thomas Cromwell and the king as to how to do it. And so the king uses Cromwell until he's not useful anymore. Then he puts him in prison and then he cuts his head off. And that's the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) But he sets the stage for having a very strong centralized government holding both the power of the state and the power of the church in one hand. Yeah, yeah. That backfires on the English people a few years later when his oldest daughter comes to reign. Mary. Bloody Mary. They call her Bloody Mary because she killed so many Protestants. But it wasn't that many. No, it wasn't. 300. Less than 300 she killed and her father killed some 70,000. But she was a fearsome presence in in what was becoming Protestant England. Definitely, in many practical ways, rolled back the Reformation. Well, she she declared herself not to be the ruler of the church in England, but declared the Pope to be the ruler of the church in England. And she tried to redo what had been done by Henry VIII in many ways, and the people didn't follow. Yeah. It was under her rule that Ridley and Cranmer, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, were burned at the, at That's the stake. That's correct. And it's only a, about a year and a half ago, I was, I was in uh, Oxford, and that little monument still there, but very minimal. As we were crossing the street, I sort of turned, and here's this little marker, says that on the spot they were burned. It's still part of the history and the ambiance yeah. of what is modern England. And then I think it was at Winchester Cathedral. I noticed on the, the gate there was an acknowledgement that on that spot, one of the churchmen of that cathedral had been burned. And also in Bloody Mary's era. So she went after the churchmen. She did. She went after the church leaders that were keeping England away from papal authority. Now, when Elizabeth comes to the throne, 
she has to fight against the Catholic residual feeling in England in order to establish the Church of England. It takes her about 20 years. But then she immediately starts fighting with the Puritans who are wanting to continue the reform and she wants right. to hold her via Medea. So then you have this group that wants to take it further and have a more biblical ruler in the land rather than someone who is interested in a, in a middle way. You're very correct, linking the Puritan antagonism further back. Because, you know, in the Civil War, that's where it came to a head. But the Puritan movement was a long time in coming. Yeah, it was the 1580s. You have John Pym, who is one of the pamphleteers that is trying to win the war for the hearts of the people against the Queen. And what I see the Puritan movement as, it was the real, the real outgrowth of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. Church of England in England wasn't and still isn't a continuation of the of the patterns of, of Romanism, but without the Pope. And of course, as you know, in the Civil War, the uh, precipitating element that preceded the, the uh, parliamentary debates and that was really the King's Archbishop, Lord, changing the Book of Common Prayer, messing with the Bible almost with that. And they believed that, that the King and his Archbishop were under the influence of the King's wife and Roman Catholic influence. So they saw a, a rolling back of the Reformation. That got everyone antsy. And then when there was the political crisis, instantly it sort of devolved into well, the king and his Catholic friends against the Puritans who were the pure Protestants. Not always so, but that was right. their claim, just as today the religious right, you know, claimed to speak for Puritans American uniqueness. were demanding religious freedom. Yes. But that's not their goal. No. Their goal was to impose Puritanism. It was their uh, opportunity. They got it. Yeah. After the Civil War, that's essentially what they did. Yeah. Oliver Cromwell was essentially a Puritan and most friendly to some of the more extreme elements. And uh, while I think for his time, the direct rule of the, of the protector was relatively benign, he invited the Jews back. He was fairly indulgent to uh, religious dissidents within Protestantism. Yeah, he, had, he had more religious freedom than right. Charles I had. Right, not too good toward the Catholics. His goal and his undoing was to giving power to the, to the major generals, I think they were called, in the different areas to administer religious practice and they yeah. became odious to the population. Sure. So sure. there was an attempt to enforce a certain type of religious behavior. And a similar thing happened when the Puritans went to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in America. Yeah. The religious freedom they were claiming was freedom for them to do what they wanted to do As rather we've than said be told. Uh, other times, and I keep repeating it, what we're seeing now is the same type of thing. It's religious entitlement. Yes. Under the guise of religious liberty. And I don't think, well, they're self-deceived, but I don't think they say it cynically, but it's self-interest winning out on a principle, so you advance the principle, but you really only mean for our group, for the Puritans in that case, and yeah. perhaps for what they see as an American mainline Christianity here. And of course, you get Roger Williams, who, who starts as one of them and is then- Well, he was on the inner circle. Yeah, he, he, he was one he, of the he, elders. <laughs> well, he, but he had met with Oliver Cromwell, the chief justice who really laid the groundwork for the whole uh, Puritan political movement. Like he was the guy that, that came up with the statement, an Englishman's home is his castle. Yeah. That was, he, he was one of the greatest jurists, but he was opposed to the king's power, at least in its unchallenged form. And he had a Puritan sensibility and def directly prepared the way. But when he comes to Massachusetts Bay, then he ends up being at odds with those who would, who yeah. would say he cannot worship the way he wanted to.
But I'm very interested in this, and I believe that uh, he was exemplifying the core principles that, that the real thinkers in that movement have been advancing, not the popularist application of, of unrestricted Puritan uh, sensibility. Part of the proof of that is, remember, out of that era came John Milton's Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, uh, and some of his other writings. And I can argue that even Adventism, our great controversy theme, comes straight out of John Milton. And it's a wonderful concept of the freedom of man to rebel and God giving back his power and freedom to morally uh, regain everything he'd lost. So uh, I think at root, the Puritan movement had good thoughts, but just like all movements, if it's not restricted, its successes undid its gains. And its successes, would you see, it's fair to say that their excesses came to bear when they recognized that if they could be in power, they could call all the shots for their own. Absolutely. Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, and John Reeve, chair of the Department of Church History at Andrews University. This program was sponsored by Liberty Magazine. Until next time, when we present part two of this conversation, this is Charles Mills inviting you to rest in the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone. If you'd like more information about LifeQuest Liberty, call 443-391-7258 or email us through our website at libertymagazine.org. Join us again next week at this same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of liberty burning in your heart today. <laughs>